0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 61 The Kushan Empire Episode We will be exploring a very interesting area of the world. Generally speaking, it's the lands centered around the modern country of Afghanistan. This area we have mentioned before in reference to the Hindu Kush mountain range. To the north, the Kazakh steppe. To the west, the lands of the Persian empires. To the east, the Indus Valley and the lands of India, and to the south the Baluchistan coast of the Arabian Sea. It is a crossroad of cultures with constant influence throughout history from the Persians, the nomads and merchants of the lowlands, and the Indian cultures. Firstly, we have to pick a place in time to start this episode. We know that the first major imperial force to influence this area were the Achaemenid Persians who expanded into this area from the west during the 5th century BCE. The first major political shift of power here was when Alexander the Great marched eastwards from his Macedonian homelands, conquering the Achaemenids on the way. Alexander the Great reached the lands of the Indus Valley before his death. Very soon after his death, Chandragupta Maurya would come to prominence in the Indus Valley before taking control of the Margada kingdom at its capital city of Pataliputra on the Ganges River, thereby establishing the Maurya Empire. Seleucus so Nicator would take control of the easternmost lands of Alexander the Great's empire and therefore establish the Seleucid Empire. However when Seleucus attempted to retake the lands of the Indus Valley back from Chandragupta Maurya he would be unsuccessful and the Mauryans would remain in control. Further misfortune for the Seleucids would follow in the middle of the 3rd century BCE when Diodotus Sota, the Satrap of Bactria, seceded from the Seleucid Empire establishing a kingdom which we retrospectively call The Greco-Bactrian kingdom We recognise that the settlement of the Macedonian army veterans in these lands After the expansion of Alexander the Great Had a direct influence on the culture of this satrapy And so the Greek culture is recognised in our name for the kingdom We actually covered this from the Persian perspective way back in episode 3 When we also described the subsequent independence of Parthia to the west of the Greco-Bactrians and we all remember how important the Parthians became. Tensions remained high between the Seleucids and the breakaway satrapies of Parthia and Greco-Bactria right through to the second century BCE. The Seleucids failed to bring the Greco-Bactrian kingdom back under its rule and when they retreated, the Greco-Bactrians made the most of consolidating their position and expanding into former Mauryan territory now that the Mauryan Empire had been overthrown by the Shunga, who were nowhere near as powerful or influential as their Mauryan predecessors. The man in charge was Demetrius the Invincible King of Greco-Bactria. He expanded his influence eastwards over the lands of the Indus Valley, previously ruled by the Mauryans, and he established a new Indo-Greek kingdom. We can see the influence of Greek and Indian cultures on this region with their unique fusion of Hellenistic art, with the Buddhist culture first brought to these lands during the rule of Ashoka Moria, otherwise known as Ashoka the Great, who ruled during the previous century. The Indo-Greek king Menander Sota was a great promoter of Buddhism in his lands during the middle of the 2nd century BCE. By Menander's reign, the Greco-Bactrian throne had been usurped, causing a political rift between the Greco-Bactrian kingdom and the Indo-Greek kingdom. So both kingdoms were now on an independent path from each other. Yeah, Chi! The next part of this story will feature a large migration crisis not completely unlike the one that we described happening in Europe in the future during the migration period described back in episode 55. In order to tell this story, maybe unsurprisingly we need to head north to the lands of the Eurasian steppe and particularly the Kazakh steppe and the lands and societies to its east. When we told the stories of the Scythians and the Huns, We gave an acknowledgement of the fact that the nomadic societies of the steppe tended to migrate westwards, and for two main reasons, fruitfulness of the lands and population pressure. This is where we have to recognise the contribution of the work of the early Chinese scribes who assist us in linking together migration stories. Of course, we have to be careful that societies known to Chinese scribes in the East are likely to have called particular societies by a different name to names given to them by any Indian, Persian or classical world scribes. So there is a degree of educated guesswork. The route from the East, the lands of China in the Eastern Steppe, to the West would have highly likely have taken populations through an area referred to as the Hexi Corridor. The Hexi Corridor is a narrow stretch of traversable land to the south of the Gobi Desert, which is made arable by the natural water flows from the Chilean Mountains to the corridor south. Not only was the Hexi Corridor an important gateway from the Far East to the lands of the West, but it would become a significant trade route and an important part of the Silk Roads. We believe that around the start of the 2nd century BCE, these lands were occupied by nomads called the Yechi. The Yechi are one of the few recognizable nomadic peoples of this area to the northwest of the early Chinese societies. Their position at the gateway between China and the west put them in a powerful position to control trade through the Hexi Corridor. To the east of the Hexi Corridor, there were a people called the Tsiongnu. We mentioned the Tsiongnu back in episode 57 when we stated that some historians believed the Xiongnu to be ancestral to the Huns, although this is not universally agreed. Nonetheless, this is a few centuries before the story of the Huns the Xiongnu were adjacent to the peoples of the early Chinese dynasties and were unsurprisingly brought into conflict with them on more than one occasion during the 3rd century BCE. Xiongnu fortunes began to alter when a man called Modu Chanyu became their leader in around 209 BCE. Early in Modu Chanyu's reign, the Han took control of China and in order to survive, the Xiongnu needed to take advantage of its location and surroundings by taking control of more and more land to the east of the Hexi Corridor. So, with the Xiongnu expansion to imperial levels to counterbalance the Han Dynasty of China, the Yetchi were forced westwards out of the Hexi Corridor into the lands of the Indo-European-speaking Wusun culture of the steppe. The Yechi gave the Wusun a good beating, also killing their king. So they would take their lands and the Wusun were left to be subsumed by the expanding Xiongnu. As the Yechi expanded westwards, they would encroach on the lands of the Saka. The Saka are a city and culture who we mentioned in episode 56, who had been dealt a defeat a couple of centuries previous by Alexander the Great, who had expanded all the way from Europe with his Macedonian army. Now, the threat was coming from the east as the Yechi were expanding into their lands in and around the Ili River Valley, and the Saka were being forced westwards and southwards into the land of Sogdiana, Bactria and northern India. All of this was exacerbated by the return to strength of the Usun, who were now bullying the Yeti from the east and pushing them west. The Saka would settle in the lands of the Indus Valley alongside the Indo-Greek Kingdom. They would establish an Indo-Scythian Kingdom, which during the following century, the 1st century BCE, would come under pressure from the west by the expanding Parthian Empire So we can recognise A migration pattern that had seen Traffic heading westwards into the Kazakh steppe and either turning Southwards towards the Indus Or westwards towards the Pontic Caspian steppe and this pattern Turns up again and Again in history The land To the west of the Indus Valley We referred to as Sakastan Named after the Saka. Now the descendants of the Saka, who we have also called the Indo Scythians, had been pushed eastwards out of Sakastan into the lands of Northwest India. Now it was the first century C.E., and the rulers of the easternmost Parthian lands declared independence from the Parthians and created the Suren Kingdom in the lands of Sakastan. And the Indus Valley, and we call this kingdom the Indo-Parthian Kingdom, as if things weren't confusing enough already. Now we get into the key stage of our episode as we go back north to those lands of the Illi River Valley, now occupied by the Yechi, who had migrated west after being pushed from the east by the Usan and forcing the Saka southwest. The Emergence of the Kushana. One of the tribes of the Yechi to the north of Sakastan were called the Kushan tribe and there would be a program of confederation with other Yuchi tribes and population expansion which had been putting pressure on the Indo-Scythians northern frontier since the first millennium BCE. The origins of the Kushan tribe is a little bit sketchy with some scholars even claiming Indo-European links, but this is highly speculative. The people of China recognised the tribe and referred to them as the Guishuang. The people of India recognised the tribe and referred to them as the Kushan. The people of Greece recognised the tribe and referred to them as the Kosanon. The Kushan and indeed the wider community of greater Yechi tribes occupied a very important area of the world that would be the gateway between China and the rest of the world and as such they would be occupying a very popular trade route that was becoming more popular as societies such as the Romans and the Persians became more prosperous. This was the crossroads of the ever improving Silk Road with growing trade between East and West in silk and silk garments, spices, ivory and jade. Societal affluence was feeding human luxury desire and creating the Silk Road trade route network that the Kushans were able to exploit for their own wealth and power. Kushan coins from the turn of the first millennium suggest an upsurge in activity and prosperity. The Kushans plugged a hole in this new prosperous trade route to China that linked the easternmost lands of the Roman Empire in the eastern Mediterranean and the adjoining Parthian Empire of the traditional lands of the Persian Empires to the westernmost reaches of the Chinese Han Dynasty, who were subjugating the lands around the Tarim Basin previously controlled by the Tiongnu so there was now a route from east to west controlled by powerful empires right the way along the entire route One of the first major rulers of the Kushan Empire was a prince called Kuzula Kadphises We really don't know much about his background but some scholars suspect a connection with the Indo-Scythians who had been pushed into the subcontinent by the Indo-Parthians so there could have been a royal marriage somewhere along the line but there's no evidence of this. We know that when Kujula was in control of the Kushan Empire it expanded into the lands of the Indo-Parthians therefore keeping the Parthians' eastern border shy of Bactria and no further east than Jadrosia in the south famous for where Alexander the Great's army were exhausted heading back from the Mauryan border to Babylon almost 400 years earlier. The Parthians would have certainly been incentivised to try to take control of Sogdian lands adjacent to their Parthian lands of origin east of the Caspian Sea. It does seem that the Kushans and the Kujula deliberately denied the Parthians access to this very important trade route opportunity. The coins minted in the Kushan Empire during the reign of Kuzula demonstrate aspects of the classical world. Coins were minted in the style of Roman coins but they would contain Greek inscriptions and figures such as the legendary Greek hero Heracles which point towards the Greek cultures which remained in these lands from the existence of the Indo-Greek kingdom. The resulting relationship between Kushan and Greek cultures is well demonstrated by a very recent discovery called the Rabatak inscription. The Rabatak inscription was made on a rock and was discovered in the modern country of Afghanistan in 1993. It dates to the 2nd century and these were the lands of ancient Bactria so we know that this was under Kushan rule. The inscription is written using a form of the Greek alphabet demonstrating how the script survived from its introduction to this area thanks to the expansions of Alexander the Great during the 4th century BCE. Ashoka the Great's edicts in these lands also had Greek translations so Greek influence was evidently high in these lands given all that we have mentioned. The Rabatak inscription tells us some of the detail relating to the Kushan rulers and mentioning King Kujula Kadphises. The names of the kings and contemporary scriptures point towards this area of the world east of Persia and west of India being a place where there was a strong fusion of cultures and there's a strong suspicion of royal family intermarriage, as the different tribes attempt to survive by diplomatic means. Elements of the respective cultures, such as Greek script, remain in this area, but the Indo-Greeks, the Indo-Scythians, who were the remnants of the Saka, and the Indo-Parthians were eclipsed by the power of the Kushans, who had control of the Silk Road, possibly the factor that made all the difference. The 5th century Chinese manuscript called the Shu recognises the success of the Kushan Empire during this period. We have it mentioned there that Kujula Kadphises died when he was around 80 years old and that the empire passed down to his son who continued the expansion of the empire and negotiated internationally at the Han Chinese court also. So here we have further evidence of the Kushan stronghold of the Silk Road and there is also a direct recognition of the Kushan becoming very wealthy in the Hanshu too. The son of Kujula Kadphysis is thought to possibly be Vimatakto and there is evidence of inscriptions and statues dedicated to Vimatakto in Gandhara, which is where the city of Taxila existed. The chronicles for this period are a little bit sketchy and different interpretations of them are put forward for the succession of Kushan monarchs. It is often stated that Vimatacto's successor is Kadphises, and he could have been a grandson of Kushula Kadvises through Vimatacto or another of Kushala's sons called Sadakshana. The most well known of all the Kushan monarchs though is a man called Kanishka Kanishka the Great It has proven to be very difficult using all of the evidence available to be able to pinpoint an actual year of accession to the Kushan throne for Kanishka Estimates have previously been made that go as far back as the 70s but the more accepted dates have been speculated to be in the 120s Kanishka's reign is significant for a number of reasons which we will now explore. Kanishka ruled over a golden age for the Kushans, who despite their eastern steppe roots were now a long way from their origins and stretching their influence down the Ganges River across those territories once controlled 400 years previous by the Mauryans. We have discussed how the Kushans were influenced by the cultures of the lands that they brought into their possession. Religion was an important aspect of this area for many centuries as the Kushans were now in traditional Vedic lands. Vedic religion was an alien concept to the steppe cultures but they were an underpinning part of everyday life to the south in the subcontinent. While the Brahmanic traditions that preceded Hinduism in the subcontinent were still the dominant traditions of the subcontinent, the reign of the Mauryan Emperor Ashoka the Great during the 3rd century BCE had spread a strong tradition of Buddhist faiths across the Ganges River Valley and up into the former Greco-Bactrian lands of Sakastan, roughly modern day Afghanistan. We can see that the rulers of the Kushan Empire were influenced by the Vedic religions that had touched the Bactrian lands, and as Kanishka the Great further extended Kushan territory to incorporate the great cities of Ashoka's Maurya Empire, namely Ujjain and Pataliputra among many others. Kushan coins minted before the reign of Kanishka demonstrate recognition and adoption of Vedic symbols and deities that we closely relate to both Hinduism and Buddhism, such as a depiction of Shiva, one of the principal Hindu deities. Despite having control of the city of Taxila in the Gandhara region, the Kushan capital city was actually established at Purushpura, which is the modern city of Peshawar in the modern country of Pakistan. From this power base, Kanishka appeared to try to control as much land as possible and would attempt to extend his reach into the Tarin Basin. And in doing so, he would extend the influence of Buddhism along the thriving Silk Road, east towards China. And this would be the origin of the initial proliferation of Buddhism in China during the 2nd century although it might not be completely out of the question to suppose that some Buddhist missionaries from the subcontinent may have introduced Buddhism to Chinese lands for the first time before this century. Kanishka's reign provides a good example of how successful the Kushan had been, and they were the first powerful entity to successfully link East and West Eurasia. Their art, Culture and traditions reflect this. Coins show Kanishka showing respect to Zoroastrian deities as well as the Brahmanic and Greek deities as mentioned before and indeed the Buddha. Depictions of the Buddha are created in classical world styles showing a fusion of ideas. Buddhist scriptures tell us a story of how Kanishka converted to Buddhism after a heartless beginning which led him to being remorseful and embracing Buddhism. If this sounds similar to our story of Ashoka the Great, then this may not be entirely a coincidence, with there being a suspicion of overplaying the miraculous conversion by painting an exaggerated picture. Certainly promoters of Buddhism would have found it difficult to avoid this temptation. Kanishka, is said to have organised the fourth Buddhist council as recorded by Sarvastivada tradition, which differs from other Buddhist traditions that are grouped as the Theravada. The Sarvastivada tradition specifies Kanishka and the Kushan as a great influencer of Sarvastivada Buddhism. The two main alternative extant branches of Buddhism are the Theravada set of traditions and the Mahayana set of traditions. And the Sarvastivada tradition associated with Kanishka is believed to have been strongly influential on the emergence of the Mahayana branch of Buddhism, where the seemingly very humble Gautama Buddha was elevated to a much more deified and supernatural status. Decline After the reign of Kanishka, scriptures and archaeology become a little bit quieter. Kanishka appears to have met his end at the hands of his own soldiers while campaigning in the direction of China. It is tricky to suggest the reason, as some historians suggest, that Kanishka's hard campaigning caused his troops to turn on him. Historically, we find that this generally only happens when there is an attempted usurpation. However there is no evidence of that and we may never know why Kanishka's troops chose to kill him rather than desert him. While the Kushana were expanding their influence they would force the Indo-Scythians out of Sakastan and into the Indian subcontinent into the lands which we retrospectively call the Western Satraps. The Kushans were likely to be the overlords of the Western Satraps but after the death of Kanishka it seems that the western satraps attempted to reassert their independence. One of the advantages of the Kushan Empire was that they were in between many great kingdoms and empires, and they were able to control and exploit all of the trade routes between these nations. One of the disadvantages of the Kushan Empire was that they were in between many great kingdoms and empires, And because they were controlling and exploiting all of the trade routes between these nations, they could face hostility from all angles. And so they would have to play a game of shrewd diplomatic politics between the mighty empires who surrounded them. In the earliest years of the 3rd century, the Kushans appeared to be paying tribute to the Wei dynasty of China, who were themselves stretching their influence westwards towards the Tarim Basin. This was during the reign of a Kushan king called Vasudeva. Vasudeva is considered to be the last of the great Kushan leaders. It was around the year 224 that the Parthian Empire fell, and this could have been good news for the Kushans, but for the fact that the Parthians had been removed from their lands, by a new mighty empire called the Sasanians. The Sasanians pushed the Parthians from the west... ...and conquered their lands, but they did not stop there. They pushed on into Kushan territory too. The Kushans were not able to resist the might of the Sasanians... ...and so the Sasanians swept aside the existing monarchy... ...and established a new regime that effectively demoted the Kushan Empire into a vassal state to the Sasanians. The western satraps of Indo-Scythians would certainly be completely independent from the Kushans now, and the city of Bauch was now the capital city. The domain of the Kushans was a small fraction of its previous region, now very much restricted to Bactrian lands. The glory days were well and truly over. The new kushano sasanian kingdom would be ruled by Kushan Kushanshahs and would continue to operate as a vassal state of the Sasanian Empire for some time to come. Interestingly, we have been able to track most of the Kushan development from the less obvious science of numismatology, which is the study of coins. Minted coins have told us so much about which cultures touched the Kushans, and which of those cultures meant the most to them, with art styles and deities encompassing the traditions of many of their neighbouring powers. Now, the coins were more humble and made reference to the Kashanshah name imposed on their rules, thanks to Persian influence. It was now the 4th century, and times were changing as were the most powerful rulers of the lands of southern Asia. In Pataliputra, a new power was emerging. This power was the Gupta Empire, and they would extend their reach to the lands of the upper Ganges that any Kushan refugees may have migrated eastwards into after their displacement at the hands of the Sasanians. Also in the traditional manner of the Eurasian steppe, more nomadic cultures would migrate into the Illy River Valley. This time we believe that they were related to the Huns. This was the period of the Hunnic migrations west, and their inevitable impact on Europe. Though it is possible that some tribes also diverged south, just as the Kushans had done before them as part of the Yetchi. This time it was a group called the Kidarites. The Kidarites are also referred to by the name Kidara Huns. What is extremely confusing is the amount of names of nomadic cultures of the steppe that we have and trying to determine their relationship to one another. This is made all the more difficult by the fact that some cultures will refer to a set of nomadic tribes by one name and that name may be synonymous with another name used by another culture. So let's take an example such as the Xionites. Way back in episode 4 we introduced the Xionites as a steppe culture who emerged around this time and had a conflict with the Sasanian Persians. Historians cannot quite pinpoint the connection between the Sinites and the Kidarites, potentially suggesting that they might actually be the same peoples. The Indians referred to these people as the Hunna people, but those Hunna people are believed to have included Hephthalites who emerged during the following century, the 5th century. However, historians consider the Kidarites to be distinct from the Hephthalites, The Hephalites are sometimes called the White Huns to distinguish them from the Red Huns, which is another name for the Kidarites. We don't clearly know what the relationship was between the White Huns and the Red Huns and the Huns who invaded Europe, and we're not even sure if the Huns who invaded Europe more closely related to the White Huns and the Red Huns than any other steppe culture. The issue really is that most of our information is brought to us from the writings of neighbours, such as Greco-Romans, Persians, Indians and Chinese, and their scriptures only tell us what they called them, and we have to investigate the connections for ourselves and draw our own conclusions. My advice to you is not to worry about it too much and just to consider these classical world era cultures of the Eurasian steppe to be after the scythian cultures and before the turkic cultures and likely to be related loosely to the hunnic cultures what we can say is that the kidarites migrated southwards into bactria where they replaced the kushano sasanians and then they pushed onto Kashmir and Punjab within the lands of the Gupta Empire of India where they soaked up any remnants of the Kushans to the point where their name disappears from history. Thanks for listening to the episode. Episode 61, it's ridiculous, ridiculous number 61. Um, But uh, yes, we've done 61 episodes now And that was the Kushans And we're going to move forward next week We're going to be revisiting a couple of aspects uh, A little bit later in the volume Um, We haven't got that much longer to go in the volume To be honest with you We're we're not going to be doing uh, Much more than about 75 episodes in total Um, But... Uh, One or two of the aspects uh, that have cropped up in that area are the Buddhist uh, migrations and also the Silk Roads. So we need to probably talk a little bit more about those two subjects uh, sometime later on. But next week we're going to stay with the chronology and we're going to be looking at the emergence of the Gupta Empire. Uh, all the way on the other side of the Indian subcontinent but of course uh, the migration of the uh, of the empire will be touching back upon the lands of the Indus Valley and that kind of area so um, very much uh, the next natural stage of the Indian subcontinental story A couple of messages to read out First one Uh, says hi Chris just found your podcast it is amazing thank you so much I'm a doctor educated in the UK but now living in Canada like you I didn't study much history in school having been forced to give it up at age 14 to concentrate on sciences I have however discovered a love of this hole in my education and do my best to fill it in any way I can Your podcast series is the best that I've found. I've just finished the Paleolithic. I find it sad for you that you do not like your accent. It is an example of the wonderful tapestry of accents that exist in the UK and is part of history uh, itself in a way. It's perfect for explaining things as well as you do. I cannot even contemplate how much research and text preparation goes into each episode. Part of my medical degree included a course unit in human evolution, a subject that has always fascinated me, and comparative anatomy with hominids, and you have given me a better understanding of it than any of my old professors did. Thank you again. I keep looking forward to... The, uh, the future episodes a real treat best wishes uh, Ian Higgins thank you Ian very kind very kind message very warm words and um, yeah certainly I, I don't know I mean anytime anyone mentions anything about uh, ana- uh, anatomy with uh, hominids I always think back to that TV series um, with uh, Professor Alice Roberts um, among others and uh it it was called prehistoric autopsy where they were um looking at uh, the actual biological aspects of of uh, our, our our ancestors or the other hominins that existed before us so i highly recommend that if you can find that series now let's see uh what reviews i've got uh for the podcast um, I've got one from Brilliant98 um, From Great Britain Who's put uh, Perfect for car journeys This podcast has been uh, An excellently written and executed Chris is an extremely modest guy Who have you been talking to? I don't, you must be mistaken for someone else Chris is an extremely modest guy Who passes the information on to you effortlessly Seldom do I have to re-listen to an episode to fully understand a given subject, and this is especially impressive, as it's normally hard to concentrate to a podcast when driving. Harry Dorset, UK. Um, well, do you know what? Well, it's good, really, because um, we talk about my voice, and um, you know, sometimes I try and listen back to older podcasts, and within two minutes, I'm, I'm sick and tired of my voice, and I start thinking about other things. Uh but um it's nice to hear from others that when they're listening to the information for the first time that they're they're finding it engaging. So um I must be doing something okay. And um you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying writing it and producing it and um and broadcasting it. So I suppose that's all that matters, doesn't it? If if people are crazy enough to listen then God bless them and uh thank you uh thank you once again. Um as um, ever, we always remind you that if you want to support the project, you can. You can support the project. We're, you know, looking forward to making this into something pretty special. So you can uh, play your part in that. If you, uh, if you go to the, the dot com website, you can click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution towards the podcast. And you can make a, a contribution for as little as $1 a month. And uh, whenever you do make any kind of contribution towards the podcast, you earn the distinction of being a member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. Now, if you go to the Patreon site, you can actually see that when you have accrued an, an amount of donations over any amount of time that we do send you stuff out in the post and we give you opportunities to ask questions and even suggest your own uh, podcast episode uh, suggestions for subject matter. So you can earn those rights to uh, to do that. And um, let me welcome along uh, this week uh, to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. We've got Marcy. We've got David Lunn and we've got Olga De Oliveira. You're all now uh, lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And um, I've noticed that we've actually got um, now a big round 100 uh, simultaneous patrons to the podcast. There are 100 people who are actually in the process of making monthly contributions towards the podcast. Now I find that quite incredible. I I never imagined that I'd be saying something like that. However, what it does mean is that um, I feel obliged to do something about that. So if you are indeed um, on the Patreon site, if you are registered to make a contribution towards the History of the World podcast uh, itself and uh, you're registered there, um, I should be recording maybe a short video of thanks uh, sometime uh, in the next few days. So look out for that one. It's uh, it's going to be Patreon exclusive uh, just to uh, make you feel like um, I uh, genuinely do appreciate the effort that you're going to in order to give up your hard-earned cash to help me to continue this wonderful journey that we're on. Anyway, um, if you can't... Um, afford to make a monthly donation, that's no problem. You can still support the project. All you just need to do is rate and review wherever you listen to the podcast. So don't forget to do that anyway. I'm gonna wrap up now this week. Thank you very much for listening um i'm gonna get you uh gonna get you off and on your way this week um without wasting any more of your time to be honest with you. I've had a nightmare this week, and I'm a bit tired, and I'm looking forward to going to bed now so um, by the time uh, you listen to this, if it's only just come out, I should be sound asleep. Anyway, next week, the Gupta Empire. Don't forget to join me then. And until then, thanks for listening and don't forget to be good. Come to the history of the world and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.